Good morning. Uh, my name is Solomon. Um, my wife, Brecken, is in the back. So today's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Um, please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scripture is read. Again, that's Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in third grade through fifth grade, you're invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join uh, Kids Commons upstairs. As you're able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus entered Jericho and had made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to, the ha the, gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, parents and guardians of children third through fifth grade, you're invited to escort your kids to the kids' common at the back of the room. Good morning. Uh, my name is Marcus. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. As is our custom, let's go ahead and just take a moment to settle, to lean in, to prepare our hearts for the Lord this morning, and I'll open us with prayer. Creator God, thank you for being so faithful to meet us when we call you by name. God, that when we seek you, you will be there. And God, your presence and your love for us is not defined by our ability to feel you or not, God, but it is defined by truth that you've given to us. So God, wherever we come from this morning, we declare your presence with us. We declare your presence here. We know that you are here among us. Pray for your Spirit's movement this morning, that we see the Spirit, that we see the Father, that we see the Son in new ways. Speak, Lord. Pray these things in your Son's holy, holy name. Amen. Uh, well, like Stacia said, believe it or not, we're coming to the end of our sermon series, Jubilee, Recalibrating for the Common Good. Uh, Jubilee was a season set aside by God to recalibrate people and recalibrate society. And, and we need these recalibrations because over time we drift away from God's intent for peace and for wholeness in our lives. 
I don't think I just speak for myself when I say this. This series has been one of the more impactful series of my life that I can remember. I've been challenged, inspired, encouraged, I've been convicted, and all those things that can happen when God speaks in our lives. But that always hasn't been fun along the way, right? Along the way, we've all had to consider the ugliness of ourselves, the ugliness of our upbringings or our world. Yet I believe God invites us to do just that. It's what Pastor Matt said at the very beginning of our series, right? This call of the Christian is to listen, to agree, and then to address to identify the evils around us, to learn about those evils, and then with a partnership of the Spirit to make room so that Jesus can bring healing. This is the journey of the Christian. But we all know how easy it is to get stuck along the way on that journey. A few years ago, uh, my wife Caroline and I, we were living in Rochester, New York. A little-known fact about Rochester, uh, in all of New York State, Rochester claims the third highest resettlement rate for refugees. And in 2016, it took number one. It took the most refugees of any city in New York State. And because of this, the city wasn't just diverse. It actually felt diverse, depending on where you were, right? And the church we attended, this was no exception. Just about a third of us were African or somehow connected to the refugee population of the city. We felt that diversity in our conversations in soul food, sitting in the sanctuary, in small group, in the songs that we sang together, in the sermons that we preached. And in the church world, we love the idea of diversity, right? But let me tell you, it is so much easier to keep diversity as an idea than it is to experience diversity, right? Uh, there is a mantra in our church in Rochester, because of our demographics, because of the way we looked, each person at each moment is going to feel uncomfortable a third of the time. Okay? So a third of the time, something's going to be happening in the room that's not necessarily for you. It's going to be for somebody else. So imagine like, putting that on a church website. Right? <laughs> Is that the church you want to attend? Right? That one that's going to make you uncomfortable a third of the time, or maybe bored, or maybe feel alienated a third of the time that you're there? Uh, in small group one week, we were reading from Isaiah 14. Uh, it's a passage written while the Israelites were in exile. Uh, and in the passage, the prophet Isaiah speaks words of hope looking forward to the day that one day Israel will break free from Babylon's oppressive power. So Isaiah writes this. Isaiah writes, In that wonderful day when the Lord gives his people rest from sorrow and from fear, from slavery and from change, you will taunt the king of Babylon. You will say to the king of Babylon, The mighty man has been destroyed. Your insolence is ended, for the Lord has crushed your wicked power and broken your evil rule. You know, in our discussion in small group that day, it eventually went around to asking how we can hear this promise spoken to us today, right? We're not in Babylonian exile like the Israelites, but maybe personally we each feel exiled, right? So how do Isaiah's words and how does Isaiah's promise land with us? Uh, we went to church with an American black man named Bill. Uh, Bill was the type of guy he pulled no punches, right? He was a kind and loving, he was a former pastor, but man, he said it straight. And at some point, Bill, respectfully and lovingly, and dare I even say prophetically, uh, said to me, hey, I know you want to see yourself as an Israelite when you read this, but I need you to realize that you're not an Israelite to everybody. Right? Many refugees and minorities here in Rochester are going to see you, a young, educated, able-bodied, financially secure white man, as a Babylonian. To them, you are not the victim. You're the one that keeps them in exile. 
And it was a comment that just whoo, totally upended my world. And I, my emotions went all over the place, right? I, at points, I found myself growing defensive, arguing with Bill in my head why he's wrong. Uh, I felt guilt, I felt shame. I'm like, oh my gosh, Bill's right. I am the bad guy. My existence is hurting people. Right? I'm taking up space that belongs to them. Uh, at times, I was tempted to minimize or rationalize. Right, things, aren't, things aren't that bad, Bill. It's not my problem if the refugees have a hard time with me. Right? That's their problem. They need to work through that. Right, excuses, justifications, alibis, anything to give myself a way out of the discomfort of Bill's confrontation. And I know Bill, right? and Bill wasn't out to make me feel bad. Uh, his words were challenging, loving, they were truthful. But even though I like to think that I'm secure enough and mature enough, spiritually mature enough to handle these words, my response was so telling to me. There's something deeper going on here. Have you experienced a moment like that before? Maybe you've experienced a moment like that during our series, one of the topics that we brought up. Because it's no secret, right, we love to see ourselves as the good guys. Right? We're the champions. We love identifying with stories where people are weak and we overcome struggles, especially in church. Right? In church, if you take a sampling of our popular worship songs, uh, many lyrics enforce this idea that we have to push through. Right? We have to stand our ground. We have to do the right thing. We have to have faith that God is with us, strengthening us, and with God's help, against all odds, we overcome. And songs like this, they are good, and they are beautiful, and they are mostly sound, right? But if that's all that we're going to have, if, if that's all we're going to sing, like an imbalanced diet, these are going to start to deform our view of God and our world. Uh, many of us, we have privileges, right? We've gone over this. Race, gender, citizenship, wealth, education, sexual orientation, able-bodiedness. These are all forms of privilege. Call them resources, advantages, blessings, talents. And privileges themselves, they aren't evil. God created each of us, and the way God created each of us is good. Period. The gifts God has given us are good gifts. But some of these privileges, right, especially the things like generational wealth, education, sexual orientation, race, some of these privileges are a little more complicated. And to sing those songs, songs where we take stock of our brokenness or how we benefit from unfair advantages, or even songs that acknowledge our proneness to wander. Those aren't fun to sing on Sunday morning. But if we want to tell a little more of the story, we got to sing those songs. Songs that can be heard, I think, in the story of Zacchaeus that Solomon just read for us. So let's dig into our text. Uh, first things first, some essential context, and I know you're all excited to go here with me, so let's do it. Let's talk first century taxes, all right? So please hold your applause until the very end. Uh, remember, uh, in the first century, Jews did not have their own country or government, right? So they lived under Roman rule. And Rome, like most major powers at the time, exacted taxes, water taxes, city taxes, food taxes, road, house, temple, frontier taxes from those they ruled, their subordinates. Taxes themselves weren't abnormal things. What was abnormal, however, was the way that Rome structured their taxes. So before Rome, many of the ancient major powers structured taxes so that the wealthy gave the most. Right? If you made more, you're expected to give more. But Rome came to power and flipped all that. Right? So for Rome, the burden of taxation 
fell heaviest on the poorest members of society, like farmers and like peasants and those under Roman rule, like the Jews. And to collect taxes, there aren't digital bank accounts like there are today. Tax collectors had to go door to door. Uh, the system was hierarchical. A group of tax collectors worked for a singular chief tax collector. You can see it there in the red. And those chief, collectors, chief tax collectors oversaw their region. And then those chief tax collectors worked for another higher up and so on. And though the system was already systemically unfair, these collectors had little accountability as they went door to door. And so they were tempted, maybe even encouraged, to make it a little more unfair. So when collection day came, collectors would tell people that they owed more than they were supposed to give, all so that they can take a little off the top for themselves, put it in their pocket. And sure, it's immoral, right? But just one guy, one door, it's not supposed to hurt anybody that much. But over time, this grew nastier. Right, remember, collectors typically worked for chief tax collectors. And chief tax collectors, before long, heard what was going on, and those chief collectors wanted in on the scheme too. So they asked the door-to-door -door collectors to go get a little extra for them and pass it back up the chain. And these chief collectors also worked for their own bosses, right, who also wanted a little something. You get the idea, right? It was just a little here and it was a little there, but it all added up and you multiply the corruption across several tax types and collectors and regions, and you can see how this gets out of hand very quickly. I had to uh, double check these numbers because I was, it was so unbelievable to me, uh, but there are ancient records of goods sometimes exceeding 100 times their original cost. So imagine paying $300 for a pack of gum. Right? That's, that's the reality for some of this stuff. Estimates say at the time of Jesus, Jews were paying anywhere from 50 to 80% of their income back to Rome. The poorest members of society giving 50 to 80% to the power that oppressed them. And by the way, this wasn't secret, right? Sometimes the most corrupt schemes are the ones that are all out in the open that everyone knows about. Everybody in Rome knew this was happening. And everyone chose to just look the other way. And if a peasant or a farmer or a Jew chose to to speak up for themselves and to say no, guess what, right? Standing right next to the tax collector are Roman soldiers behind him who themselves are also getting a little extra off the top, getting in on the business. Maybe it's a little easier now to understand why the scriptures lump tax collectors and sinners together so often, right? The phrase tax collectors and sinners, that phrase appears seven times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you look at the whole Bible, the primary group that Scripture calls out for economic exploitation, besides leaders, unethical leaders, unethical kings, is, you guessed it, tax collectors. Right? Some even considered tax collectors to be the worst of sinners. And in light of all this, it's also shocking to see how much Jesus spoke with or spoke about or even spent time with tax collectors. Right, Jesus invites a tax collector named Matthew to be a disciple of his. At another point, Jesus calls out a self-righteous priest and says, you are so self-righteous that it would be better for you if you were a humble tax collector than a self-righteous priest. And in our story this morning from Luke 19, Jesus befriends a tax collector, a collector named Zacchaeus. Ironically, the name Zacchaeus, it means innocent, it means pure, uh, but this man, Zacchaeus, he was anything but, right? He wasn't just a collector, he was a chief tax collector. 
And second, Jesus, or Zacchaeus was apparently very, very good at his job. I reread that Zacchaeus was wealthy, and Zacchaeus also lives and works in Jericho, itself one of the wealthiest cities in the whole region. And then third, here's the kicker, Zacchaeus was a Jewish man. So Rome built an empire on the backs of oppressed people like the Jews. But when it came time to taxes, Rome didn't collect from the Jews directly themselves. Instead, they paid Jews to go out and collect taxes from other Jews. And this is the twist of the knife. Zacchaeus, a Jew, chose to work a job so that he could steal from other Jews. Our story starts in a Jericho crowd. It's a crowd who gathered because there's news that Rabbi Jesus is passing through. Everybody wants to see Jesus, including Zacchaeus. Only Zacchaeus has a problem. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Right? In other words, he was physically short. He couldn't, get, he couldn't see over the crowd. And though the text only refers to his physical height, Zacchaeus is also short in another way, right? his reputation. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus like everybody else does, but I can't imagine the crowd is doing him any favors. They're probably pushing him to the outskirts. They're ignoring him. They're scoffing at him. And, but for Zacchaeus, desperate times are calling for desperate measures. He spots a sycamore tree, by the road, and he climbs to the top of the tree. And this is more culturally loaded than you might think. In, in first century uh, Rome, there were two physical activities that adult men did not do. They did not run, and they did not climb trees. Okay? Both were considered indecent, immature, too childlike, right? very improper. And so right away, the author, Luke, is going at length to paint quite an image for us. Right? Zacchaeus, a, a name that means innocent and pure, but a chief tax collector climbing to the top of a tree like a child. This is embarrassing for Zacchaeus. But this embarrassing gamble, it pays off for him. While Zacchaeus looks out to spot Jesus, what do you know? Jesus looks up and spots Zacchaeus and calls out to him. And I imagine the crowd falls to a hush, right? The rabbi versus the Jewish sellout tax collector. It's a showdown that's made for pay-per-view. Everybody suspects, maybe even Zacchaeus himself suspects, that Jesus is about to do the rabbi thing that the rabbis do and make an example of this Jewish corrupt official. Yet, that's not what happens here. Instead, Jesus says, Quick, come down, Zacchaeus. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus accepts Jesus' offer, invites Jesus into his home. And meanwhile... The crowd says something, right? The crowd, he has gone out to be the guest of a notorious sinner. The crowd grumbles. Grumbles. In modern speak, this would look like giving the side eye. This would look like doubting. This would look like complaining, squirming, very uncomfortable with what's happening right now. And by the way, given the distance between cities at the time, this likely wasn't just a quick in and out dinner for Jesus. Right? Most likely, Jesus is spending the night in Zacchaeus' home. Maybe Jesus is even spending several nights in Zacchaeus' home. This is not the best PR move for the Jesus camp. Uh, just last week, Katie shared how Jesus said it's essentially impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And now Jesus is entering the house of a rich person. It's no wonder that the crowd is grumbling. But in that time that Jesus spends with Zacchaeus, that day or those several days, something happens. The text is silent on this. We don't know how, we don't know when or where. 
Maybe it was over a meal. Maybe it was over several meals. Maybe there were heated discussions and there were debates, or maybe there weren't at all. Maybe there was defensiveness, guilt, shame, regret. Maybe even a little minimization, intellectualizing, rationalizing. Maybe some apologizing, some forgiveness, and a lot of hard and difficult moments. We ultimately don't know. But we do know is that at the end of it all, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, is changed. Zacchaeus really sees other people, really hears other people, really considers how his story may not be the full story, may not be, considers that his song that he's singing may not be a full song. And for the first time, maybe ever, Zacchaeus stares down at his past and recognizes, really, really recognizes what he's done. And for Zacchaeus, this realization doesn't hold him down. It doesn't push him further into shame or further into hiding. It calls him to action. I will give half my wealth to the poor, Zacchaeus says. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus hears these words and his response is profound. It's made all the more profound given Zacchaeus' history. Salvation has come to this house today, Jesus says. For this man has shown himself to be a true child of Abraham. Zacchaeus is a corrupt chief tax collector. One who has gotten wealthy by working for the evil empire. Taking advantage of his Jewish neighbors, lying, cheating, threatening, all out in the open so that he can line his own pockets. Jesus says that this man, this man, this man has received salvation today. This man is a true child of Abraham. Because it is this man who comes to terms with his brokenness. It's this man who Jesus has forgiven. It is this man who is so inspired by Jesus' love that he chooses to release jubilee around him. Zacchaeus doesn't try to absolve himself or rationalize Jesus' Jesus's claims away. He doesn't try to rationalize his corruption away. He doesn't say, Jesus, I was just doing my job. He doesn't say, there's no way I can know everybody that I stole from. I can't help. Or, okay, Jesus, from here on out, I'm going to keep my money, but from here on out, I promise that I'm going to be better. The forgiveness Jesus offered, it wasn't a self-help, feel-good message that allowed Zacchaeus to sleep at night. The forgiveness from Jesus was so profound that it inherently also invited repentance from Zacchaeus, a repentance that gave way to repair. And for Zacchaeus, repair was a relational and economic commitment to ending the general, generational cycles of poverty and trauma that his sins has helped create. Zacchaeus experienced salvation through repentance, a repentance that gave way to jubilee. The word repentance can be kind of scary, uh, the first image that I have when I hear the word repentance is this guy on the street corner holding up a sign that says something along the lines of repent or you're going to hell. Uh, combine that with shouting at some poor soul walking by, and let me tell you, the last thing that I want to do is repent. Okay? It sounds intimidating, it sounds humiliating to me. But what does repentance actually mean? Uh, the English verb repent, it's actually a Greek noun, metanoia. So metanoia is a combination of two words, meta, which means beyond or behind, and noia, which means thought or mind. So you put them together and you have a thought that is now behind, right? Or you have a mind that is now beyond. Uh, this is the word that the Greeks use to describe changing your mind, right? So if you were to change your opinion about something, 
or if you change, decide you're going to do something different from now on, you've done a metanoia. The biblical writers took this word and added this really cool like spiritual layer to it. So in the biblical sense, metanoia is the process of naming what's broken, but then also giving that broken thing to God to undergo a complete transformation into Christ-likeness. The poet Richard Trench defined it as a mighty change of mind, heart, and life that can only be brought about by the Spirit of God. And in my experience, we Christians, we are very good at the looking back stage of repentance. Right? We're good at identifying unhealthy behavior, evil behavior, broken behavior. We're good at naming our brokenness. We're good at naming other people's brokenness. We're, naming at, we're good at naming our need for forgiveness. And this is good. This is worthy. This is hard. This is precious and necessary, and it's tender. It's good work. It's work that can bring up humbling and convicting emotions. Emotions that are so humbling and so convicting and so uncomfortable that we just want to move right through them. Right? We just want to quickly apologize and we want to move on to push through, even if we don't fully confront what it is that brought our brokenness about in the first place. And then we just stop. Right? We receive forgiveness, we wipe our hands. Repentance, done. On to the next. But if we stop there, we're in danger of this whole faith thing becoming just this cycle of broken spiritual growth. Right? We can name what we've done wrong, we can feel bad about it, we can ask God for forgiveness, we receive forgiveness, but then we go about proceeding like normal, waiting for the next time that we do something wrong, maybe even the same thing wrong. If we want to encounter true transformation, we cannot stop the journey right there. In biblical repentance, we are invited to look back and we are to name our brokenness, yes. But then we are invited to see that through, to we are invited into a metanoia, right, to introduce new behavior, new patterns, new decisions, to journey with Jesus to a beyond thought, a thought that is now behind. This new life, it isn't a, a marching order. It's not a punishment that we do begrudgingly so that we can make Jesus happy. Rather, it's a new way. It's a new, a new way of living. It's a, a living that's filled with authentic, real abundance and good and jubilee for ourselves and for the world around us. Paul uses the language that, that metanoia is like taking off our clothes and putting on brand new clothes and going out into the world. Zacchaeus walks that full journey, and we get to see it. He stares all this history in the face. He names what he's done. He, he names who he's hurt, and then he goes out to repair. And this is our invitation, too. Like Zacchaeus, we, too, have invited Jesus into our home. Jesus has come near. We have received forgiveness. We, too, are children of Abraham. We, too, are no longer defined by brokenness or by oppression that we perpetuate. We have been transformed into new identities, identities not defined by our past, but by a Christ who is now alive in us. And our transformation, this, is, this was the most important thing to God. The possibility of our transformation, that was so important to Jesus, and so valuable to Jesus, and so pure, and it's so good, that God came to earth, looked at all of our sin, and took our sin to death on a cross, even when that cost Jesus his life. But Jesus didn't stop there, right? Jesus took our sins not only to the cross, but through the cross and into resurrection, into a new world, a new life, a new state of being, a new creation where we get to put on new clothes and walk out into the world to bring jubilee.
Resurrection repairs everything. Not only personally, internally, repairing the way that we think, the way we live, the way we relate, the way we love, but it must repair everything corporately too. Repairing the way systems are structured, the way goods are distributed, the way that the world values people who look, act, or think a certain way. Resurrection wants to repair everything, to make it on earth as it is in heaven. We don't know what happened to Zagius after this, but I hope that he and his community were able to find healing with one another. I hope that he broke out of his isolation and was no longer shunned by peers in the crowd. I hope he was invited to become an active participant in the community. I hope his reputation grew beyond corrupt tax collector and grew into one who is sacramentally bound to the poor, an indispensable part of God's family. And for as great as this sermon series has been, it would be such a shame if we encountered all these stories, but then we just reduced them to tips and tricks on how to be friendlier or more considerate, right? without this desire created in us to enact real change in us and around us. Hear the words of John the Baptist at the beginning of Matthew. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned, that's the word metanoia, you've turned, you've metanoiaed to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham, because that means nothing. For I tell you that God could create children of Abraham from these very stones. Or the words of James writing to brand new Jewish Christians. James writes, now some may argue, some people may have faith, others have deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Repentance invites us to look back, to take stock, and to identify and name. We cannot kill, we cannot crucify what we do not name. But the journey doesn't stop there. The journey cannot stop there. For Jesus, it was too important to stop there. It must break way into resurrection. Resurrection of ourselves into new and resurrection of the broken world into new too. We sometimes uh, settle for forgive and forget and to make clean but I think the gospel invitation is to forgive and to go be resurrection, right? To forgive and then to go bring repair. As we close, I'd like to invite the band to, come, to feel free to come up. And as they make their way up, I want us to ask, in light of this Zacchaeus story, in light of the sermon series for that matter, what is your forgiveness inviting you to repair? And maybe there is a big thing that pops in your head right now, but the Christian life also itself invites thousands of small repairs along the way too. Maybe it looks like calling someone to have that hard conversation to make things right that you've kicked away for years and years. Maybe it means having the humility to, to listen to the ones that you've wronged and ask them what they need from you to make it right. Maybe repair is radical. Maybe you need to abandon your job. <laughs> because it's rooted in this corruption and it's rooted in this lifestyle and it asks you to make too many concessions of your life. Like Jesus and Zacchaeus, maybe we need to share our homes and dinner tables with someone else. Or maybe we need to accept invitation into someone else's home. Look around. Right? Perhaps we need to ask the Spirit to highlight the ways that we can give our time, our talents, our treasures to somebody who needs it. Maybe even someone who you've directly or indirectly taken advantage of because how society values your innate privileges or devalues theirs. Or maybe you're not here yet at all, which is totally okay. 
Maybe you're not ready to do something on the scale of Zacchaeus. Maybe your action wouldn't be rooted in good intentions, or maybe doing something is neither wise nor helpful, right? Sometimes helping can hurt. Perhaps you're still in the tree wanting to see Jesus, amazed that Jesus even cares about us, but not ready to submit a certain sphere of your life over to resurrection. If that's you, how can you take the next step? How can you go learn more? How can you go deeper? How can you see the fuller story? How can you sing a better song, a newer song, from somebody else's perspective and not just your own? Maybe your next trip could be a trip to Montgomery, Alabama, right, to visit the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. It's a memorial commemorating the lives of those lost in lynchings, and just walk. Even smaller, is there a movie, is there a book, is there an article that you can engage, sitting at the feet of an artist or a writer who wants to share their experience through words, through images, through discussions, through questions? What does it look like for you to say yes to the resurrected life that Jesus has given? A theologian named Paul Tripp, he says it like this. He says, God isn't satisfied with informing us about the work of God's kingdom. God transforms us that we might participate in the work of God's kingdom. Everyone who has been brought into relationship with God has been invited into the ministry of Christ. My life doesn't belong to me anymore. Christ alive in me. Christ is the new self. And oh, oh the power of a community that can believe this. Amen.